The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. So let's take our Bibles now, if you would, and open them to Hebrews chapter 5. And we continue our study of the subject, Seeking the Savior in the Sacrifices. And we've extended that to examine the work of the Old Testament priest and how he typified the work of Christ as our great high priest. Christ was both priest and sacrifice, which is kind of a strange arrangement. But none of us can understand the wisdom of God. In the book of Hebrews, it's the author's intent in chapter 5 to demonstrate that Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament priesthood. But more than just answering to the type, his, his priesthood is superior because it's not from the Aaronic order that is from the law, but it's of a higher order that is the order of the priesthood of Melchizedek. And notwithstanding the superiority of the Melchizedekan priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood was necessary because there are certain parts of that that Christ must fulfill, uh, parts that foreshadow his work as a sacrifice for sin, which we know was Christ himself, the offering. Now, it's helpful then to understand Hebrews' purpose. As the title suggests, this is written to Jews. They're Jews who were converted to Christianity. But they needed a better understanding of the reasons that they should entirely forsake their old uh, system of worship under the Old Covenant to begin worshiping Christ in the New Covenant. Now, in Acts and Galatians, we, we learned that the apostles were constantly dogged by Jews who claimed Christianity, but they were insistent that Gentiles should be brought under certain parts of the law, that they had to accept certain parts of the law as binding upon them. And these are called the Judaizers, and they confused Jews that were making this transition from the Old Covenant to the New. And their insistence upon circumcision for salvation was really nothing less than the old Jewish prejudice against Gentiles. They refused to accept them on equal footing in the gospel. And these Judaizers were always a threat to pull other Jewish Christians down to try to bring them back under the law, even so much that Peter and Barnabas were sucked up into that heresy. Now, that's not to say that either Peter or Barnabas believed that Gentiles need to be circumcised, but when they entertained that thought and separated themselves from Gentile converts, they gave tacit approval that the Judaizers were at least in part right. And that's what prompted that very strong rebuke from Paul in the book of Galatians. Now, Hebrews, then, is an argument that the Jews were not giving up a, an, uh, a better system for an inferior, but rather they were going up to a, to a higher, holier worship in the worship of Jesus Christ, that Christ in all ways, the book of Hebrews explains, exceeds the Mosaic sacrificial system. Now, if you'll turn back to chapter 1 for just a minute, the first order of business as Hebrews begins is to set the tone for Christ's superiority. The author there says in the first part of Hebrews that in times past, God spoke 
to the Jewish fathers through the prophets. Now the prophets were men. They were highly respected by these readers, though often not respected by their Old Testament forefathers. So the prophets were good men. They were holy men. They were God's men, but they were still men. But on the other hand, in these New Testament times, God chose another way to speak, and that is to speak through His Son by whom He made the world. Now, I think it would be hard to top that kind of revelation to get your information from the one who made the world. So God sent His Son and spoke through His Son, who was the incarnate God on earth. And so it's infinitely greater when God skips the middleman, the prophet, in favor of speaking directly to the people. And so the author proceeds throughout Hebrews to uh, show that the past dispensation of the law holds nothing superior to the new dispensation of grace. And that giving up the old form of worship is not loss, it's gain, it's infinite gain. And it can't be exceeded because this is God himself come to earth performing these priestly duties in a better way. And so indeed we find this word often repeated in Hebrews, better. Christ is better. He's better. He's always better. Now in this chapter, uh, chapter 5, the subject is a better priesthood. The better priesthood of Christ. And it continues from the last part of chapter 4 in verse number 15 where Christ is called a great high priest. That is, priesthood is superior to Aaron, the law's high priest. His priesthood is not temporary as Aaron's was. It is an eternal priesthood. It predated Aaron through Melchizedek. It survives Aaron to the present time. Levitical priests all had to be replaced. They all died. But Christ lives forever. He never needs to be replaced. Now, chapter 4, verse 15, is often pulled out of its context to be used in other places for other arguments, other things said about it. But we don't want to lose the context of that verse. We need to read it in its context. It's written in this place to show that the Hebrews had not given up anything that was worth saving. They lost an earthly priest in favor of a heavenly priest. And if they should argue, as they well might, that the earthly priesthood is better, because at least we can say that the priest is one of us and he understands us, he knows what we're going through. Well, the Bible so clearly says... Jesus understands everything that we have gone through because he came to earth as a man and lived as a man. So that is no grounds for an argument. So Christ became human flesh to experience everything we experience. And he's better because he went through everything without yielding to sin. Now going into chapter 5, then the author says, For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. That's the function of the priest. He's called from among humans, for humans, to represent humans to God. And Jesus did an outstanding job at that because being God, he understands both God and man. So he can bring man before God in the way that God wants him to be brought. And Jesus was ordained for that unique work. Now, we look at verse 4 in chapter 5. This is the place that we concentrated on in the last message, and we will again tonight. And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, 
Today have I begotten thee. So Christ did not take on priesthood by claiming the honor for himself, but rather he was ordained to that position. He is God's priest, even as Melchizedek was called the priest of the Most High God. His calling then is superior. And by the way, if you want to look back in chapter 4, verse 14, the scripture says, Seeing then that you have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Now, the thing I wanted to point out about that is that great high priest is a double superlative. That's redundant, like saying high, high priest. High is the Greek mega, so we could say mega mega priest or another way of saying that is mega chief priest so this is the author's way of saying that jesus cannot be topped nobody misses anything gives up anything when switching from the aaronic order to the melchizedekian order of jesus christ now the calling in verse 5 chapter 5 verse 5 is the topic and first we learned about it the purpose of the call purpose is stated in the first three verses the priest is ordained for men. He serves men in offering uh, gifts and sacrifices on their behalf. Now, that's, we spent a lot of time on that, so we don't need to review that, except to say that Christ worked on our behalf in offering himself for sin. He justified us. He reconciled us to God. And because he is an eternally living priest, he continues to work for us, interceding with the Father. Secondly was the priority of the call. The priests were called, they're anointed by God, and with such a high calling, their work for God is their only priority. And so from the time that they were called, they stopped everything else that they were doing, and they put all that they had into this call. I'm going to speak a little more about it in a moment, but we see how the call was prioritized when God made up his plan for dividing the land of Canaan. Moses and Joshua said that the priestly tribe of Levi was not to see, receive an inheritance, the same type of inheritance as the other tribes. They didn't work for themselves, they worked for God. And so it wasn't their job to go into Canaan and fight off enemies to gain a certain plot of land and then provide for their inheritance. No, God says that their inheritance is going to be carved out of all the rest of the tribes. The rest of the tribes are going to do the work to support them, give them the places that they are to live. Now we also saw how that Jesus regarded his work for the Father as his highest priority, that he was trained for it, that he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. He was prepared for it from the day that he went into public ministry. And remember, we said at the inauguration of that public ministry, he was baptized, and that pictured the work that he was about to do. So for three and a half years, he ministered with his only focus, the Father's work. And then when it was finished, when it was time to finish it, he set his face steadfastly like a flint, as we read in Isaiah, and to, he went to Jerusalem to die. And the prospect of the completion of that work of the cross, in prospect of it, he prayed the high priestly prayer in John 17. He said to the Father, I have finished the work that you gave me to do. And then in less than 24 hours, he was on the cross, and in his bitter suffering, he cried out to the Father, It is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his life. 
Well, that brings us to the place we left off last time. Thirdly, is the privilege of the call. Priesthood was special service. The ministry of Christ is a unique calling. Pastors are not called priests, but in some ways the singular work of priesthood foreshadows the call of pastors in the New Testament. They are taken from among the people. They're not better than the people. Neither do they claim the title for themselves or claim the calling for themselves, but it comes from God. And they're to be respected because that call comes from God. Now, I want to continue the point we briefly touched on the last time. This was first in our, in our outline under this point, which was the exclusivity of the priesthood. Verse 4, And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. The call to this position is a high honor. And the respect and the honor that's due the pastor doesn't, doesn't arise from personal worth, but it arises from the association with the one who is of infinite worth, the one who chooses. The pastor holds the appointed office to represent God to the people as well as the people to God. Now, for that reason, there are strict qualifications for the office. Now, in the Old Testament, the types foreshadowed Christ. That's what this whole study has been about. Animal sacrifices and priests who made those sacrifices were symbols of Christ. And that made, made regarding the physical characteristics of both animals and priests extremely important. Now, in our discussion of the animals of sacrifice, we, we studied the scrutiny. We talked about the inspection of the animal to be sure that it was outwardly perfect. The animal could have no visible defects. And, in fact, to make sure that the type was preserved, especially in the, in the Passover lamb, the picture of that, they were very, very carefully selected. They had to be certain. There's no sickness. There's, there are no scabs. There are no rough patches of hair, no broken bones, no markings, no, no imperfections of any kind that could be seen. And they held the lamb up or put the lamb up for 14 days to prove it, to make sure there's nothing wrong with it. Now, that scrutiny was not only a sacrificial requirement, looking at animals, but it's also a priestly requirement. The priest represents Christ in a different way, of course, but the men that are selected for that office needed to have proper physical characteristics. Now, let's return to the passage in Leviticus 21, if you'll turn there. And I hope you took the opportunity the last time to look this over and, and think about it. Uh, the sermons do you the most good, uh, if you don't forget them five minutes after they're done, and if you have a problem with that, then I suggest you ride home with Jason and Sheila, and um, they'll, they'll help you figure that stuff out as they discuss the sermons on the way home. But take some time to think these things through. You, you, you go over there, go over your notes, and if you can stand it, listen to the sermon again um, and uh, catch the things that you didn't get. But look here at Leviticus 21, beginning in verse number 18. For whatsoever man he be that hath a blemish, he shall not approach a blind man or a lame or he that hath a flat nose or anything superfluous or a man that is broken-footed or broken-handed or crook-backed or a dwarf or that hath a blemish in his eye or be scurvy or scabbed or hath his stones broken. No man that hath a blemish of the seed of Aaron the priest shall come nigh to offer the offerings of the Lord made by fire. He hath a blemish. He shall not come nigh to offer the bread of his God. 
I said last week, that's probably the most politically incorrect statement passage that's written in all of the Bible because the Israelites did not abide by the Americans with Disabilities Act. Uh, the rules are much different today. Physical characteristics do not keep people out of the ministry. But to be honest as I can about the passage, I must tell you that God does discriminate. He does what he does for his own purposes and for his own glory. And his purpose is to show Christ, and that cannot be done with physical deformities. Now, the picture, uh, to picture the coming of Christ, typology uh, and with discrimination about physical characteristics of sacrifices and priests is a necessary part. Now, notice verse 18 says, no one with a blemish can serve. Now, we're used to seeing that with the animals. We talked about that many times Inspecting that animal, make sure there's no, no physical defects in it, nothing you can see. But is that also true of people? Well, it is. And we have to deal with that and understand that God has his purpose. The priest represents Christ. That trumps everything, including our propensity to insist on fairness. And say, no, you have to treat everybody alike. Well, frankly, God doesn't have to treat everybody alike. He does exactly what he pleases to do. Now, I find it interesting here that he says, a blind man cannot serve. That's a New Testament, or rather, uh, that's Old Testament. That's not a New Testament qualification for pastors. That's Old Testament for priests. This reminded me, as I was thinking about it, uh, of one of the greatest theologians among Baptists in the 19th century. Uh, one, uh, he w uh, was a blind man. John L. Dagg was one of the giants of the Southern Baptists when they had many among them that were giants. And Dagg taught in the seminary at Mercer University. He was an able theologian and a preacher, but he would have missed the qualifications for Levitical priesthood because he was blind and had other physical illnesses as well. Now, I've got a picture of him if uh, we have, uh, have see that there for just a minute. Uh, that's John Dagg. I, you, you can't see very well in that picture, I don't think, but his eyes, if you look at those, they don't look quite right. Well, he was a blind man, and uh, he did all of his work while he was blind. Now, he was an invalid, blind, but still he became one of the most beloved and respected men among Baptists in the 19th century. Now, the reason that I know about Dagg is because of his, because of his manual of theology and Manual of Church Order, which was the first systematic theology written by a Baptist in America. It was the standard among Baptists for many, many years. And uh, the studious among you, if you're interested in what John L. Dagg had to say, which is good, then uh, you can get that in a PDF form on the, on the Internet if you want to look that up. So the blind could not be priest. I have an old friend that... Uh, has been, and, and the lame, John, I forgot to mention that too, as an invalid, John, John L. Dagg was also lame. Um, I had a friend, I uh, have a friend, who has been pastoring a church for more than 50 years, and he's been crippled since birth. Some of you may have heard of the evangelist David Ring. I heard him preach many, many years ago at uh, Jerry Falwell's church in Lynchburg, Virginia. And uh, his most popular sermon begins with this line, I have cerebral palsy. What's your problem? Now at times, 
You listen to David Ring, it's very difficult to understand. But he's used his disability in a very unique way for the Lord. But if he had lived in the Old Testament times, he would have been disqualified from the priesthood because of that illness. Now you also see in the passage that a man can't serve if he has a flat nose. That one's interesting. And I don't mean to, to stereotype anyone. But what is the um, facial feature that most Jews are known for? The nose. I mean, this Middle Eastern people lots of times have big noses. And so God says here, if he doesn't look like us, if he doesn't have the big nose, it just won't work. He can't be a priest. That's kind of an odd thing, but that's what it says. So I think you gather from that that Jesus had Jewish features, not Caucasian features like the pictures show. He, he wasn't black, and I've seen the black Jesus too. You've probably seen that. He wasn't black, he wasn't white, he wasn't Asian or European. He was a Jew. And then God added more. He said, if there's anything superfluous, what does that mean? It means, does he have too many parts? Does he have some that he doesn't really need? You remember the giant in Gath? that had six toes on each foot and six fingers on each hand. Uh, David's, uh, I believe it was David's um, uh, nephew that killed that giant. But besides being a Philistine, he would never have been made in the priesthood because he had too many parts. So if you have three eyes, forget it. You can't, you can't be a priest in Israel. Then it talks about broken feet and broken hands. You're disqualified for those. They couldn't mend bones like we do, and so... A broken bone hindered service. You remember Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, that his nurse was carrying him and she fell as she was running away and Mephibosheth was lame from his birth. Now he's a Benjamite, but had he been a Levite, he wouldn't have been able to serve in the priesthood. Then it says a dwarf cannot be a priest. We don't single people out like that today, but they did then. And then there's yet another problem here that I hesitate to say, but it does need to be said, a man with his stones broken cannot serve. That is, a man must be able to reproduce. It's necessary because that shows the vitality of life. And so that is a picture of Jesus Christ. So all of these imperfections that we see in the scriptures, all of these things are tied to sin. People have deformities because of the fall. Adam was a perfect man. But his descendants felt the immediate effects, uh, effects of the fall. They were all born in sin. And this is where deformities come from, our imperfections come from. Not necessarily personal sin. The sin nature is enough to do it. The fact that we're born in sin, that's the cause of all of our imperfections. Now remember that Jesus rebuked the Pharisees when they asked about the blind man that he healed. And what is their question? They said, who sinned? Whose fault is this? Was it this man or his parents that sinned, that he's born blind? So they were convinced he can't be born blind unless somebody sinned. And he was right, at least this far, somebody sinned. And that sinner was Adam. But you notice something else about that text? Um, Jesus had something more pointed to say to the, to the Pharisees. Jesus said... God caused him to be born blind. 
Now, you can wrestle with that one if you think that God doesn't sovereignly control lives without human input. He was born blind. Jesus said that the power of God would be shown in him when Jesus healed him. And I'll just go ahead and say that's true of every believer, every sinner that comes to Jesus Christ. You come because it's God's power in you. And that's a display of the glory of God that causes us to come. Now, the point of Leviticus 21 is that Jesus was without sin. He was unblemished physically because there was no sin nature in him that caused those kinds of imperfection. And so the selection of the priest, priest reflected that. Now, you can complain, this is unfair if you like, but it's God who sets that standard, not us. Now, let me close out this point um, by saying that we don't need today to regard these physical limitations. Well, why don't we? Because the perfect high priest came. Because he's been here. He did everything that needed to be done. He fulfilled all of those types, so we don't worry about that anymore. The physical disabilities don't keep us from serving Christ. And when we see that overcome in a man like John Dagg, or somebody like David Ring, then we know that's the power of God that enables a man to serve in that way. So rather than physical limitations being imposed on God's men, there's more emphasis on the spiritual qualifications. Now I'd like you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and here we can just briefly explore God's present qualifications for ministry. And we'll notice in the complete text of his qualifications, it says nothing about physical deformities. But this is what it does tell us, 1 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 2. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, both legs the same length. No, it doesn't say that. Verse 3. Not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous. By the way, I, I shouldn't interrupt the reading of the scripture, but it just came to my mind. I, I couldn't help this. I went to a chiropractor in, in, uh, in um, Petaluma a few years ago, and this seemed to be the standard thing. I know what's wrong with you. You got one leg, it's shorter than the other. And what I've got to do is lengthen your legs to make them both the same length. That's causing your back to have problems. You've got to watch chiropractors, some of them. Uh, verse number four. That's, that wasn't in the Bible. That's just what I added. Verse four. One that ruleth, these are qualifications, one that ruleth his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity, for if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them that which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now you read that list of qualifications, and you should recognize that the numbers of men that can meet those qualifications is fastly dwindling. The outside of the man, Leviticus 21, foreshadows the inside of the man in 1 Timothy 3. And there are fewer and fewer men that meet the rigid test. Family failures, moral failures, ethical failures, those are far too prevalent among Christians today. But we notice this. God still preserves his church. He raises the men that he needs 
And there will always be enough of them to meet the qualifications because God appoints to the office just like God preserves the church. So God's never going to say, you know something, I've got a lot of positions that I can't fill. Give me some applications. I've got to fill all these, all these positions. I can't find anybody. No, He sustains the office just like He does the church. And we can trust God for that. So what we ought not to do is to compromise the qualifications of a man to get him into the office because we're having a hard time filling the pulpit. No, we wait until God gives us the man who meets the scriptural qualifications. And if we don't do that, we're headed for disaster. But my purpose this evening is not to expound 1 Timothy 3 in the office of the pastor. We've done that in previous Sunday night series. But I do want to make another point about the exclusivity of the office. The priority of priest, the priest calling, prevented him from doing secular work. Tabernacle worship was a daily consuming occupation. Sacrifices were made morning and evening. Preparation for sacrifices and all the ceremonial things that had to be done. All of that was ongoing. So a priest has no time to plow fields, to raise crops, harvest crops, no time to tend to herds and flocks. Now earlier in the message I mentioned the inheritance of the priest, and this is the command in Numbers 35. Command the children of Israel that they give unto the Levites of the inheritance of their possession, cities to dwell in, and ye shall give also unto the Levites suburbs for the cities round about them. And the cities shall they have to dwell in. And the suburbs of them shall be for their cattle and for their goods and for all their beasts. Now obviously somebody has to take care of the cattle that the Levites own. So not all Levites are priests. Some take care of it for the rest. So the Levites that are not in service at the tabernacle, they're the ones that are taking care of the cattle. So the priests were not to worry how they would live or what they would eat. The people took care of them through their tithes, and the priests consumed part of the sacrifices as well. Now the New Testament parallel for that, for pastors, is in 1 Corinthians 9, 13, and 14, which you can uh, review at another time. And it says that pastors are to receive their maintenance just as priests in the Old Testament did. Now, of course, that would be minus the sacrifices. So if you have a cow, you can keep your cow. That's not necessary. But if you respect the office of the pastor and you receive benefits from the ministry, then you are to contribute generously to the support. The church doesn't gift me for my labor. Uh, No, I actually do work uh, to do this, to preach to you. But that's not the main point that I want to make out of this at all. We've also discussed that at other times. We need, though, to relate this to the ministry of Jesus. That when he began his public ministry, he didn't have a job. He depended on the Father to take care of him. And that was not by God miraculously dropping down food from heaven. I don't think that we read anywhere in the Scriptures where Jesus ate that way. Do you remember seeing that? So God didn't send manna down from heaven... But rather, he expected people to take care of Jesus, to feed him. And you remember when he called his disciples, he said, you've got to leave your nets. In other words, the same as saying, you're going to leave your jobs, and you're going to prioritize me, you're going to do my work. And he said, you go and don't take anything with you. Don't put anything in your satchels to take with you. And so they weren't to wait for a windfall 
before they started serving Jesus. We discussed that last week. The man who had to have his inheritance before he followed Christ. That's not what Jesus said to do. So he expected that the disciples would be taken care of by the people that he ministered, they ministered to. Now he knew that there were some that they would preach to. They would throw them out. They wouldn't have anything to do with them. Support them, forget that. But he also knew that there would be enough of God's people that would see it as their duty to feed them. And that's what they depended on. Now, why did they do that? It's because they counted the work that the disciples did as valuable. So when you have someone in the church who says, well, I'm not going to tithe. I'm not going to give to the church. I'm not going to help support, maintain the pastor's work. It's because they don't see any value in the work that's done. We pay for what we get, don't we? And if we want... Never mind, I won't say that. Yeah, maybe I will. So if you want the best, pay the best. No, I'm just kidding about that. Further, secondly, the exaltation of the call. Now, it's probably more than coincidental that Aaron's name means very high. Did you know that? Aaron's name means very high. His mother then had this little baby, and she said, very high. And that's his name. Aaron is very high. I think that's appropriate because of the work that God called him to do. You see, I believe just as the Apostle Paul was, that Aaron was separated from his mother's womb for this position, and that is just another reference to God's sovereign control of who we are and what we are and what he calls us to do. Now, Aaron was above the other priest, the other priest or the ordinary priest. Aaron is the high priest. And his unique privilege of being the high priest was to enter into the holiest place of the sanctuary where God dwelled in the brilliant Shekinah glory. And his appearance there each year was a very brief one. It only happened for a very brief time on that one day of the year. But on that one day... He is the only one, all through the rest of the year, he is the only one that has permission to enter. Aaron was a type of Christ in that as well. Only Jesus could go to the Father with the blood, with the blood atonement for our sins. Hebrews 9.24, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. In verses 11 and 12, But Christ being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Acts 5.31, Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So you see, the author of Hebrews keeps up the theme when he's writing, Christ is better. He's better. He's better. So he's saying to these Jews, go to Jesus. Forsake the old covenant because he's better. He doesn't make a continuing sacrifice. He entered one time into the holy place and obtained eternal redemption for us. Now, let me very quickly give you four aspects of the exaltation of the call. The first is, this is a holy calling. Now, the focus of our ministry is the glory of God. The purpose of salvation and service 
is the glory of God. That ultimate purpose is to magnify His name. So, New Testament believers, the Bible says, are priests of the Most High God. So that is our job, to glorify the name of Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 1 verse 9, Who hath called us, saved us, and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. So our salvation and our deliverance from hell and its personal aspects are benefits that are derived from God's primary purpose, which is God's glory. So we can only thank God that he decided this is the way that he would glorify himself, not some other way. I mean, he could have done it some other way, and if he had, you and I would die and go to hell. But our salvation, he sought to glorify himself in this way by saving people, by bringing them in with his mercy and grace. So salvation doesn't have its perfect fulfillment in our enjoyment, but in God's purpose to take us to heaven and to have heaven populated with a vast multitude that will glorify him eternally for the salvation they receive. Now if you'll turn to Revelation chapter 7, we can see this. Uh, There's a great throng in heaven. They never rest day or night from saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And so if you look then at Revelation 7 and verse number 9, After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne, and about the elders and the four beasts, and fell before the throne on their faces, and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing, and glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might, be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. And there we have the design of the entire universe, to glorify God. As Paul said, he called us according to his purpose and grace before the world began. Paul says it is purposeful and this is his purpose. And so we ask if this is his purpose, then where is there any room for chance in God's purpose? Does he work all things after the counsel of his will or does he not? Try as you might, you're not going to find chance in God's purpose. So Christ didn't die to give people a chance to be saved. He died to save his people. That's why his name was called Jesus. You remember that? Matthew chapter 1. They shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So Christ's calling is a high calling to save people that also receive a high holy calling that was promised before the world began. Secondly, it's a heavenly calling. Hebrews 3, verse 1, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. So this is a call that comes down from heaven for heaven. This is Christ's purpose, to get you there. And he did the Father's will in accomplishing that purpose. But we find that most people are far more interested in here than they are in heaven, uh, of heaven. This This is why we have a prosperity gospel today. 
Because people are more interested in what happens here than what happens in heaven. And people are content to stay here if God will just make me rich enough to make my life comfortable here. Who cares about heaven if I get that? Like the prodigal son, these are people that want their inheritance now. And there are plenty of preachers that are willing to say, you can have it now. Well, of course, all the way, all the time, preying on the people that they preach to. They preach for their purpose, not God's. So we could call the prosperity gospel husk for pigs. The best on earth is nothing compared to what we get in heaven. Thirdly, it's a hopeful calling. Ephesians 1.18, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. So the ministry call is a hopeful calling. Now, be careful to note the way that hope is used in the New Testament. Hope is not a vain wish. It's not longing for something that might happen, but then again, it might not. That's not how the Bible uses hope. It says that our hope is sure, that our hope is established in Christ, who is the solid rock. And that solid rock is Jesus' blood and righteousness. So that hope can't fail any more than Christ could fail to do the Father's will. So he gave his life for his sheep, not to just lose them later. So the Bible says the hope is sure and steadfast. We have hope in our salvation. Why? Because our high priest is always interceding. So when we sin, Christ says to the Father, I paid for that sin too. Don't charge him. And this is what Romans says, doesn't it? Who can charge anything to God's elect? God is the one who justifies. So Christ's priesthood is better because it's eternal. It provides sure, steadfast, eternal hope. Then finally, it is a high calling. As as Paul said, it is the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Our calling is as Christ. It's an upward calling. He was received up into glory, and Scripture says that we too shall be received into glory. 1 Timothy 3.16 And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. And our calling comes from the same place. It is an upward calling, a high calling. We are called to be received up into glory at the last day. And that's predicated upon the work of the high priest. Now, once again, in Hebrews 5, look at the result of God's call on Christ. Verses 9 and 10. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him, called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So he is the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And so for these Hebrews who thought that they gave up a perfectly good system to take on something they're unsure of, something that just might not work. They gave up daily sacrifices, and they thought, we have no priest. And here the writer assures them, yes, there is a priest. And that priest is working for you right now. He made one sacrifice and then sat down on the right hand of God forever. He is a perfect priest with eternal salvation. 
So, he says to them, you, you've not been given up, but you will be received up because of that glorious work of your high priest on your behalf. He is your priest ordained for men in things pertaining to God. He's a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, an eternal priesthood for eternal people. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for time in your word tonight. What a great blessing it is to read the scriptures and see what Christ has done for us and then to develop those pictures out of the Old Testament and, Lord, to see how much better that Christ is in any, anything that anybody has to offer, any religion in the world. Nothing touches Jesus Christ. We thank you for him. We thank you for salvation in him, eternal salvation in him. Bless your people, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.